You're listening to the SSPX Podcast, and welcome to episode 36 of the Crisis in the Church series. Today, we're joined by Father McGilvery to ask one question. How is it that the church, which is supposed to be indefectible, can give us a rite of worship, the Novus Ordo Mass, which is, at the least, problematic, if not defective? So we won't be able to answer this question specifically today, since this question opens up a lot of other questions we need to answer first. Namely, how can the church, through an ecumenical council, Vatican II, promulgate errors. We saw this a little bit last week, but we're going to go into some more detail today. Then we'll begin to look at whether or not the church can be infallible in its disciplinary laws. That's where liturgy falls. So we're going to finish today's episode by looking at what theologians say about the infallibility of liturgical discipline. Then next week, we'll wrap up the conversation by looking at the magisterium of the church, the traditions of the church, and then briefly touch on the infallibility of canonizations. We have a lot to cover. So we're going to jump in right now with Father McGilvery. Welcome to the SSPX podcast and our next episode on the Crisis in the Church series. Father McGilvery, it's very nice to have you back with us. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Andrew. How are you? Uh, Doing very well. Uh, We have a little bit of behind the scenes fun happening uh, on my end. So if there's some construction noise in the background, I apologize. Uh, But we're working through it. It'll it'll work. Father McGilvery, we've been talking quite a bit about um, infallibility and the way that the council worked and the Novus Ordo Mass um, in all these different episodes. So episodes 23 through 26, we were talking about the Novus Ordo Mass. Uh, We talked about, uh, you know, infallibility in a few different places in this series. We talked about it when we talked about Sedevacantism. We talked about it in terms of obedience. But today, starting with episode 35, we're going to be talking about infallibility in terms of, um, I'm sorry, 36, we're going to be talking about infallibility in terms of the Mass itself, and how is it possible that the Church, which is supposed to be indefectible, which is supposed to be led by the Holy Ghost, gave us this, at the very least, deficient rite of the Novus Ordo Mass. How is that possible? So that's the big question we're tackling today, Father, and I guess where do we start? Well, I think we need to start by providing context for the question. Um, And as you pointed out already, Andrew, um, this question of infallibility has manifold applications. It's not just a question of the liturgy. How could the church promulgate a bad rite of mass? Um, But this touches upon all the different types of infallibility which the church is supposed to enjoy. Um, So we have a problem, for example, of doctrinal infallibility. Um, how can the church promulgate errors in a ecumenical council? Um, errors such as religious liberty, ecumenism, collegiality. Um, also a problem of disciplinary infallibility. We, uh, the SSPX, have certain objections to the new code of canon law. How is it possible for the church of Christ to promulgate bad laws in a code of canon law? Um, we can speak of the inversion of the ends of marriage, um, putting mutual help above the primary end of procreation, or lack of protection to the faith in the case of a mixed marriage, where the, the non-Catholic spouse is not obliged to take an oath of raising the children Catholic. Um, we have the allowance of doubtful ma- matter for confirmation. Any kind of vegetable oil is now allowed, which uh, previously, up until the promulgation of the code, was considered as, at best, doubtful matter for that sacrament. Um, We have also explicit authorization to give Holy Communion to heretics and schismatics who manifest faith in in the sacrament, um, which, again, is is completely against the entire um, canonical and disciplinary tradition of the Catholic Church. 
Um, so we have those apparent violations of disciplinary infallibility. Um, now we come to consider the question of liturgical infallibility. Um, how can the church promulgate a rite of mass that is irreverent and dangerous to the faith, um, where what should be clearly a propitiatory sacrifice now comes to resemble a commemorative meal, and this was done to, to please Protestants for an ecumenical purpose. Um, there's a lack of reverence to the Blessed Sacrament, which undermines our faith in the real presence. And the priest now, in the new Mass, is perceived as the president, the first among equals, um, who represents the assembly and conducts worship, whereas the traditional belief of the Church was that the priest is truly the minister of Christ, who alone offers sacrifice in Christ's name and intercedes for the congregation in the person of Christ. Um, and finally, in addition to all these things, we also have the problem of the canonization of saints, which was supposed to be infallible, but we have men who have been canonized who clearly are not models of heroic virtue. Um, we have, in particular, the, uh, the popes of the council and, and the period following. Um, so John Twenty-Third, um, Paul VI, John Paul II, who all um, were of, well, questionable orthodoxy, and led the church on the path of self-destruction. Um, so I bring this up in order to put the question in its proper context. Um, now, I think that we can point out right away that this question of infallibility um, has enormous consequences for our um, position with regard to the crisis in the church. And in particular, the SSPX finds itself um, in between two opposing forces which are pulling in opposite directions um, and they both take as their uh, major premise of their argument their starting point the infallibility of the church so you have on the one hand the mainstream or conciliar church which says the church is infallible now the church has promulgated all these things that we just talked about and because she's infallible you just need to accept them all blindly close your eyes don't think just take it and then you have, on the other hand, the set of Acontists, who numerically are a minority, but their arguments maybe are a little bit more forceful. And they say, the Church is infallible. Um, now, Paul VI, the Council Fathers, the other post-conciliar popes, they promulgated these things which we know clearly contain errors. And therefore, they conclude, these men, meaning basically the visible hierarchy, uh, they are not the Church. The conciliar church, according to the set of Acontists, is an anti-church. And the true church is something which, well, it subsists in the minds and hearts of true believers, the few who still retain the faith. So you have, in other words, these two diametrically opposed positions, which both take as their starting point this, this uh, truth of the church's infallibility. But we, for our part, would like to say, well, wait a second, are we sure that we properly understand this major premise that the Church is infallible? Is there perhaps some nuance which we need to consider? I have a quick question on that, Father, and, and maybe I'm jumping ahead, but um, the, on the mainstream conciliar Church side, um, you're saying the argument is that the Church is infallible. Um, the Oh, I just answered my own question. I'm sorry. So I, I was going to ask... Mm -hmm. the, this mainstream conciliar church, they're saying that all these things are part of the, they may not say that these things are infallible, but they're part of the magisterium of the church, and since the Vatican has promoted them, mm -hmm. and since the Vatican has passed them and the church, and the, the popes and the councils, then we need to follow them. That's part of the mainstream conciliar church argument as well. 
Right, absolutely.、Um, and so we can talk about something called the authentic magisterium,、um, which is not always infallible, but does normally require require of us our interior as well as exterior assent to the things、right. that are taught, proposed by the authentic magisterium. And normally, that is a, a true obligation, binding even under pain of mortal sin. Um, so we don't. When we're going to try to distinguish, where are the the boundaries, the exact limitations of infallibility? And when we do that, we don't mean to say that things that aren't infallible are just free game, and you can think whatever you want. Right. There is a kind of middle ground, which is、uh, where we have teachings of the authentic magisterium, which are not of themselves infallible, but normally require our assent unless there are very clear, grave, evident reasons for withholding that assent. And most of the stuff that is is being imposed upon us in the the post conciliar church、um, belongs to this middle category of what we might call the authentic magisterium, which just isn't being exercised very well. <laughs> All right, so we are so we we have these these parameters. Then we have the the conciliar side of things where they say either things are infallible or as part of the. Uh, part of the magisterium of the church, or we have the set of a contest position, and the Society of Saint Pius the Tenth. And your position is, we need to find a way to thread the middle and still be logically sound. Absolutely, and just to reinforce that point before we go on and explain how we're going to do that,、um, <clears throat> I do want to emphasize briefly that neither of these conclusions are acceptable, which follow from,、um, you know, a kind of. Naive or overly simplistic understanding of the church's infallibility.、Um, the position of of the mainstream or conciliar church. It should be clear now from all the episodes which have preceded this one that it's just not tenable、um, to accept it. To accept all of these reforms of the council and post-conciliar era, we would really need to blind ourselves to the objective evidence which is there before our eyes, <clears throat> and we can try to invoke the so-called hermeneutic of continuity, which I believe we've already had. An episode covering, but、um, it, it just won't work,、um, as I think Pope Francis is making clear to all of us.、Um, and it ultimately rests upon false philosophical premises—a Kantian understanding of truth in which the subject、um, enters into the object, which is understood and conditions it.、Um, and so you eventually come to identify contradictory statements. Um, based upon a purely subjective basis, the subject changes, and so we can now affirm something different from what we had previously affirmed,、um, and so that's clearly opposed to sound reason as well as、uh, Thomistic philosophy. It's it's a way of understanding things that we simply can't adopt.、Um, it also means, though, that we'll never find a solution to the crisis in the church. Um, because as long as we blind ourselves to the problems, well, we'll never take the initiative to to try and fix them,、um, and we certainly won't know what are the、uh, what's the root cause of the problems.、Um, because in order to 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 know that, we'd have to investigate, we'd have to look into things, question, and realize, oh, there are errors in the council, there are problems with the new mass.、Um, so the conciliar position, for all those reasons, we can't accept it.、Um, but neither can we accept the conclusion of the set of acontis. Um, because as as much as they、um, do very well to preserve the holiness and the infallibility of the church, ultimately they end up destroying, taking away、um, all of her other essential notes and attributes,、um, beginning with her visibility, specifically as a society, a hierarchical and organized society. <clears throat> It's not enough for the church. 
to be composed of members who are visible because they're made of you know flesh and blood. That's what we might call the material visibility of the church. But all the manualists teach very clearly that the church is not just materially visible, but she's formally visible. As a society, and a society in which there's a hierarchy, um, there's a, a teaching authority which is visible and known to all. Um, and in the thesis of the Sedevacantus, this visible teaching authority, visible magisterium, is gone. It's disappeared from the face of the planet. Um, so no visibility, uh, no unity of government, certainly, and we see that in the, the tendency of the Sedevacantus to split into innumerable sects, somewhat as the Protestants do. Um, no Catholicity, because <clears throat> the theologians have always taught that that the note of Catholicity or universality requires that the church be spread throughout the whole world with an abundance of members. And that abundance and universal spread would be gone in the set of Acontis thesis. Um, there's no formal apostolicity or apostolic succession, meaning the, the handing on of, of ordinary jurisdiction um, from the Pope to all the residential bishops and, and this continuing throughout time. Um, we no longer have residential bishops with ordinary jurisdiction if we follow the set of Acontis thesis. And so formal apostolicity is gone. Um, and with all these radical changes in the, in the basic constitution of the church, we can say also that she's no longer indefectible. She has defected if we follow this thesis. So I just want to, um, let's say, point out the necessity of, of finding a more nuanced understanding of infallibility, because if we accept this kind of um, naive or, or um, un-nuanced understanding of it, then we end up in one extreme or another, neither of which is acceptable. And the, the, the apostolicity, that, was, that is really the, the main thesis of the episode that we did with, with Don Tranquilo, um, uh, episode number 34. That's, that's the main, main point that he was really focusing in on, especially during the first half of his conference. Uh, and and that makes, that's probably the most clear-cut reason why the, the set of a contest position doesn't work, but there's also a lot of practical difficulties with the position as well. Absolutely, and that's worth mentioning for sure, especially because later on we're going to talk about the prudential standpoint of the society, which does take into account these practical difficulties, um, especially if we look at, you know, just like with the conciliar ideology, okay, um, we'll never arrive at a solution to the crisis in the church because we're not even admitting the fact that there is a crisis. Now, instead of Acantism, there's still, humanly speaking, uh, there's no explicable way of solving the crisis. Um, and that's true no matter which of the various positions we consider. Um, if we look at conclavism, which is basically where we say, okay, we are the only people who still have the faith, so we're going to consider ourselves to be the true church, and we're going to do a papal election. Um, well, it's, it's kind of ridiculous, and it results once again in innumerable sects. And none of these supposed popes actually have any real authority, and their claims to the papacy are simply not credible. Um, and then we have the opposite extreme, which is divine interventionism, if I may label it that way, where we say, okay, there is no way to elect a new pope. Um, all of the legitimate electors are gone, so the, the cardinals are not true cardinals. Um, even the residential bishops who might be able to assemble in a, in a kind of imperfect general council and elect a new pope, well, they're not true residential bishops either. So we have no electors, um, and therefore we must simply wait for God himself to directly intervene. Um, this is completely opposed to 
um, the prudential attitude that we should have, which, which assumes that God will always provide Holy Mother the Church with a remedy to um, take care of herself and elect for herself a legitimate head. Um, but in this thesis, there is no way that that's possible. Um, can I can I jump in one sure. one second here, Father? Of course. And, and to me, this is this is important, at, at least in my mind. I, I don't yeah. know how important it is to you, um, but I, I've I've seen in discussions and and articles on the set of a contest position uh, this this topic here. God will not leave the church. He will do something. He will perform some sort of a divine intervention, some sort of a miracle. And yes, he absolutely can. Mm-hmm. That is definitely within his power to do. However, the church has uh, fought the father. God has set up the church in a in a temporal way, and He has provided it with a temporal means of succeeding. Uh, and so, I think the set of accounts will often say, "Well, you don't have any faith that God will save the church." No, we do, but we also think that God is going to save the church through the means by which He has presented it, by by which He has has built it. Absolutely, that's very well put, Andrew. And I would say it's kind of like. <laughs> The people who say that Archbishop Lefebvre should not have consecrated um, bishops in defiance of the papal mandate because he should have just waited for God to intervene um, and surely God would have provided some way for the church to continue. Well, I mean, we are men um, and we have to realize that God works through men as his instruments, and that's the ordinary, the normal course of divine providence. And aside from a special inspiration, we need to do um, what on our part seems humanly necessary to ensure the survival, the continuation of of tradition and of the church herself. Um, Because God uses, um, in, in the ordinary way of his providence, he uses normal human means. And that's what we need to stick to as a rule. Uh, of course, if you have a special divine inspiration and that's genuine, well, I'm not going to be the one to stand in front of you and say, don't follow that. <laughs> but it's also clear that it's very easy to deceive oneself in regard to these things. And, sure. and for ourselves, and, and just when we're giving, when we're making important decisions or explaining um, our position within the crisis of the church, um, we want to adhere to something which is reasonable and can be explained to everyone. We don't want to have recourse to, you know, I feel inspired to believe that God will divinely intervene. Um, that That's not the ordinary way that divine providence works, and we need to stick to that. Sure. Uh, and then there's there's one more thesis. Is there a father about Absolutely. the uh, set of accountism? Yes, it's um, sometimes called the Kasikiakum thesis. And this was um, authored or invented by, now I'm going to probably butcher his name because I don't speak French, but Father Gerard de Laurier, um, who in fact was a very important um, theologian in the pontificate of Pius XII. I believe he was in fact Pius XII's spiritual director for a time and helped to author the um, encyclical in which he defined the dogma of the Assumption, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and if I am, you can just cut this right out of the interview. <laughs> but um, I think <laughs> I think that this is the priest that we're talking about. Anyways, Father Gerard um, de Laurier, he said, well, let's find a kind of middle ground where we don't completely deny the legitimacy of the visible hierarchy, but we do deny them their authority. We'll say that we have material popes and material bishops, even material cardinals. Um, What does this mean? It means that they have been legitimately elected to office, but there is something called the obex, or obstacle, of their public heresy, which puts them outside of the church and prevents them from actually receiving the jurisdiction which corresponds to their office. 
so that the Pope is materially a Pope, but not formally. He doesn't actually enjoy the fullness of jurisdiction or authority over the Church. Um, and the, let's say, the practical advantage of this theory is that eventually, whenever this obex of uh, public heresy is removed, all of a sudden, the hierarchy, at least those who have removed the obex, they will be real authorities, and we can re recognize them and submit ourselves to them. And in that way, the church will return to being just as she was before. Um, it's an ingenious invention, but it doesn't really have any roots in tradition. Um, no one has ever hypothesized such a thing before. Um, it doesn't really make sense philosophically, because it doesn't seem that there's a real distinction between legitimately holding office and possessing the authority that corresponds to that office. In fact, it's by receiving that authority that you become the office holder. Um, and in practice, it becomes very difficult to explain um, how this works, especially when there are multiple steps. So, you know, one pope is elected to office. He's a heretic, so he's only materially pope. Then he appoints cardinals, um, and then these cardinals elect a new pope. Well, if none of them actually have a, the authority that corresponds to their office, how do they make a real, valid, legitimate election? How does a pope, who's only materially pope, elect real, even material cardinals if he has no authority? Um, so that underlines a kind of uh, theoretical problem in, in, in this thesis. Um, and also there's a huge practical problem, which is that um, once we accept this thesis and adhere to it, well, there's, there's the difficulty just as, let's say, um, in the set of Vicantus thesis, which say, says that um, a man who's manifestly a heretic ceases by that very fact to have any authority in the church. There's no one to declare, especially for the Pope, that he's a manifest heretic. Um, so you're going to have all kinds of disagreements. No one is going to be able to um, agree, one, is the man Pope or not? And two, if he's lost the papacy, when did that happen? Well, the same thing is true, but in reverse, um, with this Kasikiakim thesis. When will we be able to agree that the man is no longer a heretic and that now we should recognize him? And so just um, as there will be schisms caused by disagreement as to when the Pope lost the papacy, there will also be plenty of schisms, I imagine, um, when it comes to agreeing when he's regained the papacy. So in both directions, there's, there's an immense practical difficulty there. And, and again, it does seem to be a compelling argument. I mean, it, it's kind of like a parent who maybe is in a coma. Um, mm -hmm. They're still the parent, but they cannot, you know, they, they are unable to do the teaching. It's, I, I think there's, that's kind of what they're sort of saying. But in that case, there's a clear line. All right, the parent is out of the coma. Now he can become a parent again. Whereas this, how do you know, who, who's going to make that decision about how, how traditional is traditional enough mm -hmm. for for sure, it's a very grave problem. Um, and also, I would say that what is attractive about the Kazikiakum thesis, um, that element is already a part of our own position, which is to say that, yes, we do have to exercise a certain amount of discernment, um, as in we don't accept indiscriminately whatsoever a legitimate pope um, promulgates or asks of us. We do um, recognize his authority and resist him when he departs from tradition. Um, however, uh, there, let's say, <laughs> there is no need to go farther and, and create a new distinction where we say, um, not only should he be resisted when he abuses his authority, but he doesn't even have that authority to begin with. Um, that's, that's where, let's say, there, there's a kind of parallel 
um, in our position, which makes them appear on the surface to be somewhat similar, um, but in fact, there's a great divergence. So then, what is the what is the proper way of looking at infallibility, Father? We've seen we've seen kind of the maximalist position, and then uh, mm -hmm. you know all the way over on the side of the contest side, there's essentially there's no infallibility because there is no one there to be infallible. So sure. uh, where do we go next? Well, I think that in fact both of these extremes do adopt a maximalist interpretation of infallibility, and we, on the other hand, we escape the dilemma by adopting a narrow or minimalist interpretation. Um, and so we will respond to the dilemma by making a distinction. So in the major premise, they say the church is infallible. Well, let's distinguish. The church as such, the Immaculate Bride of Christ, of course she's infallible. But the church in regard to her human authorities and what they do, there, we do need to make a distinction. Sometimes those human authorities fulfill all the conditions that are required for them to place an infallible act. And then, yes, the church is infallible in that act of her human authorities. Not all the time, however. Sometimes they do actions, and this is the majority of the time, they, they do actions which do not fulfill all the conditions for infallibility. And under those conditions, or in those cases, they are not infallible. And so we have to begin with this distinction in our major premise. Then we apply it to the minor premise. So yes, Paul VI, the Council Fathers, um, the post-conciliar popes, these men have promulgated errors. True. In a way which violates infallibility? No. Because they haven't been fulfilling all the conditions that are required for an infallible act. And in this way, we are not forced to conclude um, with the conciliarists that we must accept blindly whatever they say, nor with the set of that we have to reject the authority of these men, that they can't be the true church. Instead, we maintain this middle ground, which is to recognize the authority, but resist them insofar as particular actions of theirs um, are erroneous or not in conformity with tradition. Okay. Now, of course, right. the main point of difficulty in our response is where we say that none of the actions of these men, Paul VI and the other popes, uh, the Council Fathers, when we say that none of their actions would be guaranteed by infallibility, um, this is where we meet with opposition. And people say, no, this looks like an infallible act. This looks like it must have been infallible too. And this is where we have to delve into detail and explain what exactly is infallibility and what are the conditions under which it applies. Um, on the doctrinal level, it's actually not that hard to do, especially, for example, with the errors in the Second Vatican Council. It was the council, or it was rather um, both... John the Twenty-Third and Paul the Sixth, who declared that the council was pastoral in intention, not dogmatic, but pastoral. And Paul the Sixth, at the conclusion of the council, said, "We have issued no solemn definitions." And so it's clear um, that there was not an intention to teach infallibly, and therefore that condition for infallibility was lacking. On the doctrinal level, it's easy. But now, when we get into the discipline of the church and the promulgation of the new mass. It's not as easy to prove our point precisely because the conditions that are required for infallibility and disciplinary and liturgical matters have not been spelled out as precisely by the church's magisterium or by church theologians. The conditions are not as clear. And so there's more room for interpretation, and many people have 
fostered pious beliefs about the extent of the church's disciplinary infallibility, which may not, in fact, be correct. And this is where we have to examine what exactly is the teaching of the theologians and of the church's magisterium on this subject. And how much leeway is this? How much uh, is there? How much room is there for interpretation in this matter? Okay. It, it, it seems to me that it is a. There, there have always been these liturgical uh, updates, changes, um, and they've been accepted no problem. This is really the first time that a major group within the church, uh, including bishops like Archbishop Lefebvre, have looked at changes promulgated by the Vatican in terms of liturgy and said, "This is this is not correct." And so it's a it's a much more tricky proposition. I mean, there's there's all kinds of uh, theologians and and hypotheses out there about infallibility on the doctrinal level, but like you said, when it gets to liturgical, it's a lot more difficult. Absolutely, and we do have to concede that this situation in the church is something truly unprecedented. And it's often very difficult for theologians especially to anticipate um, what it is that divine providence might allow to occur in the church. For example, um, we could take the um, 40 years of the so-called Western Schism, where there were two or then three simultaneous claimants to the papacy, and uh, each of them had a large following within Christendom. And I don't think that any uh, church theologian writing manuals of, of ecclesiology, well, actually those manuals didn't exist back then, um, but if there had been theologians making manuals, I don't think they would have included in those manuals that divine providence could allow the church to be, you know, without a, a, cert, without a pope who is uniformly recognized by everyone for such a long period of time. Um, it's, it's something that we would not have anticipated. And I think that also with the present situation in the church, we just have to recognize that um, it may not be reasonable to expect all of these things to be anticipated and spelled out in the preconciliar manuals of theology, because it's truly a crisis situation, um, and, and no man could have anticipated that divine providence would allow this state of things. Um, so that's just a brief caveat, but then I think we'd better get into the, the subject of infallibility itself. Sure. So, so we're looking specifically at disciplinary infallibility, and, and there's doctrinal infallibility, which is what we looked at, and that's more on the theology side of things, and then we mm -hmm. get into disciplinary the, uh, infallibility. Now, discipline is more in terms of, again, I'm painting with a very broad brush, and correct me if I'm wrong, but disciplinary law is more on the, is, it's like canon law. It's what kind of, another example would be what kind of punishments do we give for this type of violation of, of the law. It's it's liturgical practices. That's under the disciplinary side of things. But we still have to look to theologians to help us understand this law. Absolutely. And that's because there is a very close connection between disciplinary infallibility and, and doctrinal infallibility. In fact, many theologians would say that the church's infallibility in disciplinary matters is an indirect kind of infallibility because it, it's only insofar as the church, by um, proposing a certain discipline or, or rules to follow for her faithful, she indirectly teaches truths of a doctrinal nature. Um, we'll get into that in just a moment. But maybe the best thing is just to define infallibility in general, and then we'll go through these divisions and explain exactly how the same term is applied in different senses. Um, okay. If we just take infallibility in, in the broadest sense of the term, um, we have to point out that this is a negative charism or special gift of God, um, which prevents the church from erring in a way that would make her fail definitively 
in her mission of teaching, which is doctrinal infallibility, um, governing or sanctifying. And those last two pertain to disciplinary infallibility. Um, just a few points on this definition. We say that infallibility is a negative charism. A charism is a special gift of God which is given to an individual, not so much for his own benefit and sanctification as for the good of the church as a whole. So certain things like uh, being able to speak in, in tongues or to prophesy or to work miracles, those are clearly charisms um, which are for the good of the church, not the individual. Um, infallibility is, is of that kind. And we call it a negative charism to distinguish it from something positive like inspiration. You know, a person who is inspired, um, for example, the, the authors of, of the books of sacred scripture, whatever they wrote, it was positively put into their mind by God. Every single word was positively inspired, whereas infallibility is more like setting up barriers. Um, it prevents the Pope or the other authorities in the church, the bishops who are united to him, it prevents them from teaching error in a definitive way. Um, but it doesn't mean that all of their words and deeds are positively inspired. It's just a preventative. Um, I also add one more clarification, which you won't, I don't think, find in the manuals of theology, to be quite honest. Um, but I just want to clarify that infallibility prevents the church from failing, I say definitively, um, because we don't want to acquire from, let's say, these, these notions which are given in the manuals of theology, a kind of idealist view of the church in which everything must be good and wonderful. The church is composed of human members, um, and in her human element, she's capable of certain imperfections, as in these men of the church who hold office, who have authority, um, they are capable of failing to do their duty as they ought. And the infallibility of the church will prevent their personal failures from going so far as to cause the gates of hell to prevail against the church, um, so far as to cause her to, to fail ultimately in, in her mission. Um, but there can still be, I think we can say, failures on, on a kind of minor or secondary level, um, which are due to the imperfections of the men themselves who make up the governing body of the church. Um, so again, just to be really clear, um, that that um, adverb definitively isn't necessarily going to be found in a textbook, but I think we have to understand it that way in order not to um, think that infallibility means that everything will always be as perfect as possible in the church. Um, now, again, we already said that infallibility is first of all or directly doctrinal. It has to do with the church's teaching mission. Then, uh, secondarily or indirectly, it's disciplinary. It has to do with her missions of, of governing and, and ultimately sanctifying as well. Um, and when we talk about doctrinal infallibility, which is the, the, the main or prime sense of the term, um, we also have to distinguish a double object. And if we don't you know, make these clarifications up front, then this can lead to confusion later on. So bear with me here. Um, but the primary object of the church's doctrinal infallibility is what we call the deposit of faith, meaning the truths that have been publicly revealed by God and committed to the church before the death of the last of the apostles, St. John. Um, so these are the truths that we must believe with divine faith. And when they've been defined by the church, it's with divine and Catholic faith. Um, so these truths are the primary object of the church's infallibility. Um, then she also has a secondary object, still in the domain of doctrine. 
And these are truths which are not formally revealed by God. They're not truths to be believed with divine faith on the authority of God revealing, but rather they are other truths which have some connection to the truths of faith and are necessary for safeguarding the deposit of faith. And the church has authority to speak and define, even with infallibility, in these matters because of her primary duty to defend the faith itself. Um, this will become clear when we explain the two main categories of, of these truths that belong to the secondary object of, of doctrinal infallibility. They're usually divided into dogmatic facts and theological conclusions. A dogmatic fact is a truth of a historical or factual character um, which has an intimate connection with the deposit of faith, um, such as the legitimacy of the Council of Trent or of the pontificate of Pius IX. Um, th that council defined, the Council of Trent defined many things which are of faith. But if we did not know that it's a legitimate council of the church, then we couldn't make an act of, of divine faith in those truths that were defined. Um, and, and so it's absolutely necessary to safeguard the faith, to also believe firmly, um, even with infallible certitude, in the legitimacy of that council. And it's what we would call a dogmatic fact. Likewise, there are theological conclusions. Um, a theological conclusion is whatever is easily deduced from a truth of faith and an evident truth of natural reason in such a way that if you deny the theological conclusion, you are in danger of being led to deny the truth of faith, uh, which it presupposes. Um, maybe one fairly clear example of this um, is the definition of personality, um, which comes into play when we speak of the hypostatic union and the unity of our Lord's personality. Uh, there was a certain German theologian, I believe, Gunther, who was condemned by Pius IX, um, because, well, among other things, he taught that personality consists essentially in self-consciousness. And we know that our Lord, being divine and human, uh, fully divine and fully human, he had a divine, he had the divine intellect. Uh, he knew himself as God, but he also had a human intellect, a part of his human soul, by which he knew himself as man. So he had a divine self-consciousness and a human self-consciousness. If we take this incorrect definition of personality, which was proposed by Gunther, um, following the whole you know, German idealist philosophy, um, then we conclude logically that our Lord must have had two personalities, two persons, because he had two self-consciousnesses. And on account of that, the church found it necessary to condemn his teaching, even though of itself his error might seem to be purely philosophical. Right, because this is this is an error that that could have that could have damaged someone's someone's belief in something that is that is greater, i.e., the divinity of of God Himself or the divinity of our Lord Himself. Or, yes, so the, specifically they to the, clarify. Yes, the unity of our Lord's person. Sorry if I didn't make that clear, okay. but that's a, a truth of faith which has de been defined by the ecumenical councils um, that there is only one person in our Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, a divine person. Um, there is no, let's say, second additional human person that is added on to make, you know, a composite of, of two persons. No, there's only one in our Lord. He assumed a human nature into the unity of his one person. That's a truth of faith. And so in order to maintain and conserve that truth of faith, we have to reject um, false philosophical definitions of personality that would logically lead us to deny the, the truth of faith. Um, so that's the domain of what we call theological conclusions.
with the Immaculate Conception or the Assumption, these are two dogmas um, regarding regarding Our Lady. Would those be in the category of theological conclusions? These are these are things that that make sense. They are easily deduced from the faith, but they were not necessarily revealed. That's a very interesting question. Now, the truth is that those two truths um, belong to the deposit of faith itself. Um, even if they were not believed with the same degree of explicitness in the first centuries of the Church, um, as, as time progresses, the dogmas of the faith come to be believed, not necessarily with a greater penetration of understanding, but they come to be believed um, in a more explicit manner. And so those truths that were you know, defined infallibly almost 2,000 years after the end of public revelation, they still, in fact, belong to and are truly actually contained in public revelation. Um, sometimes it's a very difficult work of theologians to discern what truths are really in the deposit of faith versus what truths are theological conclusions because it's not always, um, it's not always immediately clear which of the two categories a certain proposition belongs to. Um, and ultimately, okay. we have the authority of the church to help us uh, know with sure. certitude in certain cases. Sure. Okay, that helps. Um, now, if I may add, while we're speaking of doctrinal infallibility, there's one more uh, thing that we have to clarify, which is that um, in addition to the twofold object of infallibility, there's also a twofold organ or instrument of proposing doctrines infallibly. And this is spoken of in the First Vatican Council. Um, as well as in a letter of Pope Pius IX called Tuas Libenter, which is in Denzinger. Uh, and it's also in the, the Code of Canon Law, at least the new code, which actually has a very clear and, and excellent summary um, of this, this topic of the Church's magisterium and her infallibility. Um, so we have two organs of infallibility. One is called the Extraordinary Magisterium, and it's that of the Pope alone, or of the Pope and bishops united with him in council, who solemnly define a doctrine of faith or morals to be definitively held by all the faithful. And so this extraordinary magisterium, it's called extraordinary because this doesn't happen all the time. It's only every once in a while, such as, you know, um, we can say 1864, Pope Pius IX infallibly defines the Immaculate Conception. 1870, we have the First Vatican Council giving solemn definitions of papal infallibility, for example. Um, or, again, the fact that God can be known by the light of natural reason. Um, then we have 1950, the infallible definition of the assumption. These things are, are let's say, brief interventions um, of the magisterium. Uh, it's not something habitual or ordinary. That's why we call it the extraordinary magisterium. And it attains to infallibility in one definitive act. Then we have, at the same time, what we call the Ordinary and Universal Magisterium. It's often abbreviated OUM in English. Um, ordinary and Universal Magisterium, which is that of the Pope um, or of the Pope and bishops spread throughout the world, who unanimously teach that a certain doctrine of faith or morals is definitively to be held by all the faithful. And this definitively is something which is added for clarification in the new Code of Canon Law, and I think it's a very helpful clarification. Um, so the idea here is that the Pope and the bishops of the world are teaching in unison that you must believe this truth as divinely revealed under pain of losing your salvation. This is a truth of faith. Or at least this is a truth which is so intimately connected with the faith that you need to believe it because otherwise you're putting your faith in danger. 
And it's only when we, they teach it that way, um, and they say this must be definitively held as true, um, that, uh, that the ordinary and universal magisterium can be held to be infallible. Um, but it's not that any one act um, is infallible in itself, but rather it's the convergence of all these ordinary acts of teaching of the Pope and the other bishops. Um, the convergence of these acts results in infallibility. So it's very different, of course, in the way in which it's exercised. Um, now, and, and, I, and I will mention, Father, you are in a school, and so it's <laughs> a great thing to hear kids in the background, so... Uh, please don't worry about about that. You're yeah. you're hearing exactly what you're supposed to hear in a school. Um, <laughs> yes, I do apologize for that. We actually have a girls' camp going fine. on right now, and I was hoping that they would oh, avoid the, the hallway outside of my office, but here we are. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Uh, could you give us an example, Father, of of something in the church uh, or some some belief or some doctrine that is part of the ordinary universal magisterium as opposed to the extraordinary magisterium? Um, and I'm throwing that out there. I, I know we didn't talk about discussing this a, ahead of time, but mm-hmm. these are, and we've talked about we've talked about the ordinary magisterium in some previous podcasts. These are these are beliefs that that are held in perpetuity and reinforced, redefined over and over again by consecutive popes and councils and bishops. Um, I'm scratching my head trying to think of something in particular. <laughs> well, that's okay. It's an excellent question, and it does highlight the difficulty that we have in pinpointing precisely what truths have been infallibly proposed by the ordinary and universal magisterium. Um, and okay. usually, if they have been, it's, because it, it's something so obvious that you would never even think that it needed definition. Like, for example, the efficacy of prayer. You know, that prayer actually works. It's efficacious for disposing, or so to speak, disposing God to give you his, his blessings and favors. Um, that's something which, you know, always and everywhere has been taught by the church. Um, and it's clear that if you don't believe that, you're not Catholic. Otherwise, why would you go to Mass and, right. and pray? Um, why would you pray right. your rosary? Why, do you, why would you pray at all if it's not efficacious? Um, so okay. I think that would be a good example, the efficacy of prayer. Um, something else which we might mention is perhaps, um, well, it's along the same lines, the, the usefulness or efficacy of exorcisms um, against the devil. The fact that there is a devil, that he's there to, um, you know, to, to tempt you and bring you to hell with him, and that there are prayers of the church which can be effective in expelling him or, or reducing his influence on a person. Um, and in fact, those are truths of the ordinary and universal magisterium as expressed in the church's liturgy, which is something that we're going to get to when we finally touch on and treat in detail liturgical infallibility. Could we say maybe even the priesthood, um, certain certain aspects of that, the fact that you are able to celebrate Mass to do the to do the consecration, transubstantiation, that that is within your power? I don't think that's ever been defined as dogma, but it's always been part of the magisterium of the Church. Is that something else, maybe? At the very least, that would be in the a truth of the ordinary and universal magisterium. Um, now, I need okay. to go back and read the canons of Trent to brush sure. up, because they obviously you know, said a lot about the priesthood and the holy sacrifice of the Mass, so I can't guarantee right now that that hasn't already been solemnly defined. But something like that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Sorry about that. <laughs> it's fine. Okay. Um, yes, and now just to cap off that section of doctrinal infallibility, um, there's something important in the Code of Canon Law itself. Um, the canon law says that no doctrine should be understood as infallibly defined unless that is manifestly the case. In other words, if you're in doubt, has this doctrine been sufficiently proposed by either the extraordinary or, or the ordinary magisterium, is it infallible? 
Must we believe it? Well, we take the uh, a narrow or restrictive interpretation of infallibility. It should not be understood as infallibly defined unless that's manifestly the case. Which is why the popes, when they did wish to define infallibly, um, especially you know when in the later centuries of the church, when there was a lot of reflection upon this this subject of infallibility, they would make it crystal clear. Uh, a great example is to look at the definition of the Immaculate Conception by Pius IX. There is no question as to his intention there. But if there is a question, if it's ambiguous, then we take the restrictive interpretation. And that's the official position of the Church, of Her Magisterium, um, on doctrinal infallibility. I think it's very reasonable to apply that same um, restrictive interpretation to disciplinary infallibility, which we will get to in just a moment. Okay. So we've, so we've, looked, at, we've, looked, at the, we've looked at infallibility both in terms of um, the extraordinary magisterium, we've looked at it in terms of the uh, ordinary magisterium. So now we start to look at infallibility in terms of disciplinary uh, actions, disciplinary decrees by the church. Yes. Um, and we can say that, well, um, there's no question that the church has a certain disciplinary infallibility. Um, but to what subjects exactly does it extend? Um, that's something which is a subject of some controversy. It's commonly held by theologians that this disciplinary infallibility um, applies to universal laws and liturgical rites of the church, um, as well as the approval of religious orders and the canonization of saints. Um, all theologians, as I just said, agree upon this thesis of disciplinary in infallibility in general. Um, however, they don't necessarily agree on all the specifics. Um, and we can distinguish two points of, of disagreement. One is about the nature um, of this infallibility, and another, you know, what, what things exactly does it ex extend itself to? Um, so in regards to the nature of this infallibility, um, many theologians say that this is a merely indirect infallibility. Um, so the church is infallible in her discipline only insofar as by her universal disciplines she indirectly teaches dogmatic truths, at least through the ordinary and universal magisterium. So to give an example of what this means, um, let's take the practice of the church, um, which was maintained for centuries prior to the Council of Trent, of giving Holy Communion under only one species. So the priest, of course, communicates under both species, the, the, um, the species of bread and the species of wine, but then the laity, the faithful, were only receiving under the species of bread, which is what we continue to do in tradition. Um, now, this practice of the church manifested that it was already taught and believed throughout the church that our Lord is really wholly and entirely present in either of the sacramental species. So it's not just his body that's there under the appearance of bread, but it's the whole Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity. It's what we call the doctrine of concomitance. And so this law of the church, which allowed the restriction of Holy Communion to just one species, it was indirectly teaching or implying the doctrinal truth of concomitance, that the whole Christ is there even under just one species. Um, so we can say then that um, if nothing else, there's a certain infallibility in the church's discipline insofar as she is teaching indirectly a doctrinal truth like that of concomitance. Um, but is it is there an infallible guarantee that her discipline 
is good as such on the disciplinary level, that it's well adapted to lead souls to heaven? Would it perhaps be more profitable for souls if they were also receiving under the, uh, the appearance of, of blood, um, under the other species? Um, there, let's say some theologians will say that the infallibility in disciplinary matters is only indirect, it's only concerned with the doctrine which is indirectly taught. Um, and so it doesn't have to do with how well adapted the law is on the practical or disciplinary matter as such. Um, so it's it's basically so these these disciplinary actions the the way in which again communion is is presented those specifics they definitely reflect a truth they definitely reflect a theological infallible statement or truth um, but they in and of themselves are not are not uh, infallible they they simply reflect or reinforce this this notion of infallibility on the theological level so it would seem it 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 really depends on whether you see this indirect teaching function which is involved in the church's discipline as an exercise of the church's extraordinary magisterium you know is the church solemnly defining um, the truth that's indirectly connected with her discipline when she promulgates that discipline. Does that promulgation of a disciplinary decree amount to an indirect but solemn definition of of the corresponding doctrine? Um, And that's really hard to sustain, even if many theologians write as if that were the case. Um, you know, and so, for example, when when the church said, "Okay, you can give uh, holy communion. Let, let's give holy communion to the faithful just under one species," does that amount to an infallible uh, declaration of the extraordinary magisterium um, of the doctrine of concomitance or any other doctrine, um, or should we rather interpret that action as belonging to the ordinary and universal magisterium? which is to say that in and of itself it's not an infallible declaration of any dogma, even if there are certain dogmas that are connected with the discipline that's being implemented. Um, but rather, um, there is a dogma which is indirectly taught by this disciplinary measure, um, and that dogma um, is being proposed um, as something which is potentially part of the ordinary and universal magisterium. And if it conforms um, to what has always been done in the church or what is accepted and, and practiced universally, um, then it's, it's a part of that ordinary and universal magisterium and in that way attains to infallibility. Um, I think that's, that's probably a question that needs to be further explored by theologians. And I don't think that it's been treated yet in sufficient depth. All right, that makes sense. So where is the next next stopping point for our discussion here, Father? I think we can just point out one more thing about disciplinary infallibility, and then we can probably conclude this episode. Um, uh, so we mentioned this debate about the nature of disciplinary infallibility. Is it merely indirect insofar as it teaches doctrine, or is it direct? Um, and if it's indirect, does it belong to the extraordinary magisterium or just the ordinary and universal magisterium? Um, then also... Um, we can debate about the scope of this disciplinary infallibility. Um, And a good example of how there is still some disagreement among theologians is the subject of the canonization of saints, which I'm not sure if we're devoting a whole separate issue to this or not, uh, a whole separate episode. Um, But anyways, we can just point out how over the, the history of the church there have been radically different opinions proposed by theologians on this subject. Um, even starting with St. Thomas Aquinas himself, um, who speaks of the canonization of saints 
and says that it is piously to be believed that the church cannot err when she solemnly canonizes someone. He says it's piously to be believed. He doesn't say that it's absolutely certain or that it's a truth of faith. Um, however, as this practice of solemnly canonizing uh, continued in, in the history of the church, the, the solemn canonizations only began, um, I think, in around the 11th or 12th century. I could be a little bit off there. Um, but as this practice continued, um, the, the consensus of theologians was more and more towards um, you know, it being certain that, that these canonizations are infallible. And um, so you had some good theologians like Salaveri who, who says that um, the infallibility of these canonizations is proximate to be a, being a truth of faith. Um, so you might not be a heretic, but you're at least suspect of heresy if you deny them. Um, and I believe that uh, Pope Benedict XIV, who wrote extensively on canonizations, he was of the same opinion. However, there were other good theologians, like we can point out Van Nort and, and Tanqueray in the States, um, who continued to teach that this was just the common opinion of theologians. Um, now, the common opinion of theologians is something to be taken with uh, great um, consideration, and it would be rash to go against it without good reason, um, but just common opinion. And then in recent times, we have certain uh, good theologians who are backpedaling as regards the canonization of saints and saying, you know, we're not even sure that they were ever infallible in and of themselves. Um, now, that's not necessarily the position of, of the Society of St. Pius X, but I just point out that there is that opinion. Um, so we can mention Monsignor Bruno Gherardini, who is one uh, an important Roman theologian, um, as well as uh, Professor Roberto de Mattei, who wrote that excellent uh, history of the Second Vatican Council. He's of the same opinion. Um, so, so it just highlights the fact that there can be a lot of debate about particular subjects of this secondary or indirect object of infallibility. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I... I didn't realize until recently that that for the, much of the early part of the church, um, sainthood was proclaimed first by by the people. There was this public acclamation of someone who was very saintly, and then that would go to the pope, and he would just say, "Yes, I agree." So it it was it was odd in a way, and, and to our modern ideas of everything having a very strict process and being very formalized, that seems. Uh, very odd, uh, but all that to say, and I we'll, we'll get into this in another episode. Uh, but all that to say, the the proclamation or the canonization of a saint has never been as cut and dry, or has has not always been as cut and dry as as we are used to seeing here in the last two hundred years. Absolutely, that's very true. And uh, in fact, there are still many saints in our in our traditional liturgical calendar that we venerate as such, and many of them have never been subject to. Um, a solemn canonization. They're simply accepted um, on the basis of tradition. They've always been um, honored as saints. And so it's not necessarily true that every saint that we honor at the altar has been the object of, of a solemn proclamation. Um, and which is why some of these authors that, that question the infallibility of canonizations, they'll say, well, at a certain point, the sainthood of the person can belong to the ordinary and universal magisterium, especially if the, church, if the saint in question had you know, a great influence upon the church and questioning his sanctity would you know, cause enormous repercussions. Like if we question the sanctity of a Saint Benedict or Saint Dominic, these founders of great religious orders, that would obviously shake up the church a whole lot more than if we question some you know, obscure saint who nobody knows about, who, yes, was canonized, but didn't play such a central role in, in the life of the church. Certainly. Well, this is a, this is a great starting point for us, Father. Um, we've gone through, uh, we've gone through the, 
extraordinary magisterium, ordinary magisterium, um, and looked at the theological standpoint. We're gonna we're gonna pause it here for this for this episode. Um, but can you give us a little kind of sneak peek where we're going to be going next, Father? Absolutely. So we'll be looking at not only what do theologians teach about disciplinary infallibility, but we'll, we'll be looking at the statements of the magisterium, which have some relation to this subject. Um, because sometimes some of these statements are brought up against us, and it said, look at what Pope so-and-so said. Um, the church is inspired by the Holy Ghost in her liturgy. How can you question something that the church proposes as a liturgical right, uh, a universal liturgical law? Um, so we'll look at what the magisterium has to say on this, and then we will um, talk a little bit about our attitude in relation to these teachings of the magisterium and of theologians, um, uh, what we call the prudential attitude of, of the society. What are the things that we consider certain and which are the basis of our action in, in the midst of the crisis versus what things can we leave in a certain degree of doubt or, or ambiguity until they're definitively resolved by the proper authority. Um, and then we'll finally go on to consider this very precise question of the new mass and whether it might or might not violate the church's disciplinary and specifically liturgical infallibility. Very good. Well, Father, thank you for your time. Looking forward to diving into that with you next time. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to and watching episode 36 of our Crisis in the Church series here on the SSPX podcast. Next week on the Crisis series, we're going to continue right where we left off with Father McGilvery and finally be able to answer the question about how the church can give us the new mass. We'll begin by looking at the magisterium, the tradition of the church on this topic, and then we'll finish our episode next week by looking briefly at the topic of infallible canonizations. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and to the SSPX News English YouTube channel so that you won't miss next week's episode or any of our future ones. And if you have the ability to set up a monthly recurring donation of 5 or 10 or $20 on sspxpodcast.com, it would help us immensely to complete this Crisis in the Church project. Until next week, thank you for listening, and God bless you.